Brendan O'Mara here, bringing back hashtag CNF after a long hiatus, nearly a year since we recorded an episode, and no better person to kick things back off again with the football season right around the corner here than Richard Gilbert, who is the author of the fantastic memoir, Shepard. I met Richard in 2007 at the Goucher MFA creative nonfiction program. Um, He wrote a fantastic book. And in our conversation, we talk about the overall arc of him creating the book. It took several drafts and several iterations. And I think that is really inspiring to keep going and to keep revising. And it was very inspiring to see how many drafts he went through and how long it took him to get it and the belief that he had in the project to see it through from beginning to its ultimate publishable end. And uh, it is definitely a treat to read, and I certainly recommend it. Um, I'm going to apologize ahead of time uh, due to technological deficiencies on my end uh, and a spotty internet connection. Uh, Some of the podcast sounds very choppy and robotic. It's probably only a total of one minute in the entire interview. But if it's annoying and in any way, I apologize. Hopefully, over the course of time, I'll be able to afford some better equipment, better recording equipment, better microphones. But right now, it's very Spartan, iPhone recorder, that kind of thing. So in any case, let's get to Richard. Let's listen to him. He's got some really great insights to share. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. Well, I'm a slow learner. I, I once I've got something, I think I've really got, got it. I spent 12 years in, in daily journalism and um, had some success and won some awards. But I, I remember that it took me. I think I was in my fourth year of journalism before I really uh, pulled everything together and knew how to write a good Sunday news feature. I, I, that seems like a long time to me. Uh, I think some people can do it much faster. Uh, for some reason, I couldn't. Uh, so I had, so that was part of my thing was I'm a slow learner, but I'm kind of stubborn or can be, and I didn't want to give up. It was too important to me. And there were times, the fourth iteration of the book. I, I produced six, and the fourth one was very transformative. I ended that up, ended to a really good press, and they sent it to a couple of reviewers, and both of them endorsed it, said it needed a lot of work. One person, although he endorsed it, clearly didn't like the book and hated me, and the other person, uh, he should remain nameless, but the other guy was Bill Rohrbach, this main writer, bailed out of academia, and he lives up in Maine, and he, he, he writes novels and memoirs and, and does workshop, and he works as a book doctor. And he gave, he was one they hired to give an opinion. And he honestly, he said, you know, this, this book isn't scenic enough, it's not dramatized enough, and the guy's persona's not working, which is why the other guy hated me. I mean, you know, I, it did come up, I, I did come off like an asshole, I have to admit. So I can't totally blame that guy. Still, even if you 
an asshole. I don't like you either. But anyway, with Bill, it was kind of like he believed in me and my story and gave a lot of good advice. And I, I took all his advice, but it was partial because it was just a quickie thing. I don't know how much they paid him, a few hundred bucks, but he actually is a major book doctor, line by line type stuff. Mm. So I, I hired him then. I sent that to him and I, I, I hired him to do it. And he really helped me. He showed me. For instance, I'll give you an example that's, um, now very embarrassing to me. And it's a kind of, again, an example of my, me being a slow learner. Um, I had this hired hand who helped me on the farm. He's a neighbor guy, a local guy, an Appalachian guy who had retired from the university as a delivery man. And he lived near the farm. And because I got injured and had some you know, various health problems and issues from stress, I had to hire some help. So I hired this guy and he ended up becoming a very important in my life, well, he uh, in the in the draft that Bill saw, I corralled him all in one chapter and wrote like a standalone essay about this guy, mm-hmm. and it actually um, it actually ended up getting published that way in a journal. But for a narrative, Bill was kind of like, "Wait a minute, you met him here, way back here, and then here, and then he did this, and then he we suddenly hear about." Him him and you dispose of him and you know whatever it was chapter seven or eight what the heck that's not how you build a narrative you got we got the reader's got to meet the guy with me so that's an example bill showed me you know really basic stuff like that that wasn't working from from a narrative standpoint and kind of said you got to pull him through the book and you got to pull this thread through the book and you got to you know you got to i ended up he didn't show me how to do this but i ended up making an outline which was different uh, scenes or passages every time one changed throughout the book within each chapter. And that helped me see my themes. Some could be moved around because they weren't chronological necessarily or could be flashed back to. But somebody like Paul, my hired hand, whose, whose name is Sam in the book, you know, it's really delightful for readers, like in life. You're trying to give them your an experience of life. So you meet this guy, and he's kind of like, I say to my wife, he's going to be a pest. And she goes, you're being irritable. And I'm going, I'm going, he's going to be nosy. And she's going, you're being negative, which I was. So it's a chance to portray me and my stressed out, irritable self and the sweet local guy who could be very annoying indeed, but who was a really sweet guy. And the clash... Our friendship and clash became really important in the book, as it was in life. So I just needed to learn things like that. What were the dark days like in the middle of writing Shepard? Oh, that fourth, that fourth draft was bad. You know, looking back, it's really embarrassing because I had done three drafts, and then Bill gave me said, "You need this is what you need to do." A, B, C. Now, I have to back up just a little bit and say this about that, Brennan. If you hire a good book doctor and your book is a mess, which mine was kind of a mess, it had a lot of good content, everything but the kitchen sink, but had these problems, as I've just explained, once you start taking the person's advice, then then that draft takes on a life of its own. And at some point, advice that the person is giving you two more chapters down doesn't even apply anymore. So you've got to... But basically, that whole draft was um, 
kind of dark because, like I say, in retrospect, he gave me enough of a roadmap that I should have been like, wow, this is this is great. The content's basic. Well, there was a lot of con- The thing is, it grew. That was part of it. It, it was 300 pages, and I wrote 500 under Bill's tutelage in this draft. Well, I knew I you can submit a 500 page. 300 pages was what I wanted. I did get it down to 340. But I remember that the uh, the thing about that draft that was so hard was I would get up every day and I would manage to budget time or work my teaching schedule so that I could do three hours a day. And the first hour... I had to lash myself every single day for a year to go to the keyboard and put in that first hour. After I put in that first hour, stuff started to come good in the second hour. And in the third hour, I was producing good stuff. And this is the one point that I would make about discipline. I think it's it's something that, for me at least, isn't something you should front load. That is, I had built my muscles at that point at years writing versions for years I produced three versions and each version took about a year and that was a stage when I could apply discipline I had the muscles I had I was in shape it's kind of like the difference between saying you know what I want to get in shape I'm gonna start jogging and so you start jogging by saying I'm gonna see if I can run around the block and if I can't no big nobody's gonna big deal the sky's not gonna fall I'll run walk versus I've never run. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to go out and run a fucking marathon. That's crazy. But that's what a lot of, I think, writers try to do when they're not in writing shape or in a particular kind of writing shape or a particular project shape. And I think that when, I think love is a much stronger idea than discipline. And I, I did the first three versions out of love. And it did take discipline with the fourth because I think I was afraid. I think I was afraid I couldn't do it. Uh, I should have been happy because Bill gave me so many great ideas and I had produced so much material. But I think that that first hour of resistance where I had to lash myself to get to the keyboard and then struggle for a while in the first hour, I think it was fear. And it probably varies with each writer, but I think fear is really common. Fear and confusion uh, or your or confusion leads to fear. You don't know what to do. You're afraid. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been afraid at all. But for some reason, I was. Mm-hmm. And I, that was my own demon I had to fight. That reluctance and fear to get to the get to the keyboard or the ledger, I think has a lot to do with the uncertainty of where the work is going to go when you're finished, too. Sometimes you feel like you're just digging a, a ditch to nowhere. It's one thing if you know... Well, with a lot of these very successful writers, at least when they commit to a book, they know that the end game, they know that it's going to find a home, uh, that if they're going to do a painting or write a book, uh, that, that it's going to be prominently displayed and promoted. But you know, for, for the vast majority of writers, it's, you're putting in a lot of work that might not manifest itself into anything other than just a little badge of honor on your, on your sleeve. Absolutely. So, um, so how did the book, it took you... You know the four drafts or so to get to uh, to get to that point where you had the had the doctor come in. Um, but how did the book change from when from from what you had originally imagined it? Well, so much because I think I did initially. Uh, it, it was ignorance and I suppose laziness that I um, did certain things like not build a narrative, not not 
not build the narrative bridges that ran from one chapter to another. I mean, I'd never done that. So I was just happy that I was writing chapters and wrote a whole, to my mind, narrative. But it was more, it, it, it amounted to more like sort of linked linked essays at first. And he simply showed me, held up the magnifying glass to what I had done and said, like right here, you know, you you know, you bring up a guy and dispose of him and it has no resonance because we should have met him in chapter two. And so he just he pointed out obvious things. I mean, I think that their writers tend to be kind of um, a bit blind as to what they've actually produced sometimes. Um, and they need somebody to, to hold up a mirror and say, no, you know, you need to... Um, uh, it's sort of like records need a producer, somebody to listen and sort of um, say, ah, you know, your tone's a little off here. Or, or do you realize, do you want to be coming off this way right here? Because you can play this for humor or you can annoy the reader like you're doing here. Like as a re as your reader, I'm really mad at you because instead of making fun of yourself enough, you're being sort of uh, judgmental about other people is that really what you want and um so i think that you know was an element that i really needed the other thing was in the long process of working on it you know you get lots you get lots of advice as you go sometimes and if you don't have experience you don't remember or you don't see the value of it and that's what's really i mean it's really hard because almost any person that gives you advice their advice falls into three categories, brilliant, maybe, and crazy. And so the really good people for you as a writer give you mostly brilliant and maybe stuff. And the maybe stuff, if more than one person says that, the maybe is a yes. The brilliant stuff, it's obvious that you should take. What's the crazy stuff? Is it is it your ego saying, oh, you jerk, you don't get it, you're just stupid. Is that your ego or is that really the... You're reacting to uh, an in, inadvisable and just erroneous ego eruption in your reader, in your in your feedback person. Give you an example, though, of something that happened to me. You know, I'm bragging on myself about learning to build a narrative very late in this process, in the very last version of the book, version number six, and I'm getting ready to submit it to a press that was really interested. I read Cheryl Strait's memoir, Wild, about her trek on the Pacific Crest Trail. And that was a very interesting book to me because she's got this strong foreground story of hiking the trail. And that's analogous to many memoirists or, or fiction writers' uh, a template for that matter. You have a strong foreground narrative. And then she, what she did was, at about 12 places in the book, she inserted the backstory of what got her to the trail. So she had had this traumatic loss. Her mother had died. It had shattered her. She had gone off the rails, divorced her husband, became a drug abuser. She was on the trail to be reborn and clean herself up. I'm reading that, and I'm seeing how she worked in this key background. And I realized that I still had my father corralled in one chapter in the book. Now, he was dead before I started the farming adventure. So unlike my neighbor who actually helped me with the farming adventure, it seemed more logical to corral him in one spot. Mm -hmm. 
but I saw the power of what she had done by working that same kind of background through an entire narrative, dropping it in when something would remind her of her mother or what her mother's death led to. And this light bulb went on, and I went, holy mackerel, I need to do that with Dad. That's so lifelike. When I had this particular problem with the sheep, and I remembered that this problem he had had as a farmer or in retirement when he started a successful nursery. And it was so amazing because as soon as I saw that, I remembered what a teacher at Goucher had told me, Richard Todd, in my first seminar at Goucher College when I was getting my MFA. And I had just was talking about the book and mentioned my dad and his centrality. And Richard Todd said, oh, don't have him all in one big place. Put him throughout the book like you're walking across the pasture and you remember dad. And I had completely forgotten that because I guess at the time it made no sense to me. That, that really, I don't think, was stubbornness on my part that I ignored and forgot his advice. I think it was lack of knowledge. Mm. It, I didn't understand the power of what he was talking about. I had, this, I had to go write a book for six years and read a boatload of books, and then the two came together and I saw it. Why do you think that is about uh, people with a newspaper background that seem to have a way of corralling those elements into, say, one chapter, like you, like Richard Todd saying that you didn't want your dad in one chapter, and then you put uh, Sam slash Paul into one chapter. And But novelists have such such a key ear to rhythm where they know how to pace a story. So you see when a novelist like, sort of bleeds into nonfiction, that they have an incredible way of, of pacing and dropping in characters at the right time. So why do you think that is that, that journalists and newspaper people have... Have a hard time getting a grasp on forming that that story of the well, sort of well dolloped character placement throughout a whole book. Well, I agree completely with your point. First of all, <laughs> I've noticed that myself quite a bit, and yeah, me too. I think it's a couple of things, Brendan. I think that if you went to to a journalism school as I did, uh, although I took English courses, I my basic writing courses most of them were in journalism, and I think that writing is poorly taught to generalize in journalism schools. I think they're trying to get better because the MFA programs are eating their lunch, but it's kind of late because the newspaper industry has collapsed, as you know. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is that, of course, you know, you're out there as a professional writer in a particular medium for newspapers, or I was, and, and you were when uh, that was more of an option, uh, although some people still are. But I think that, you know, you don't have the space. And you said, you know, the way that they, the way that like a novelist uh, uh, uses the whole narrative arc of a book to do something. Journalists, even if you're writing a series, there's always the presumption that nobody knows anything, remembers nothing. And you're starting from scratch. And usually you've got a small thing. It's more like writing a standalone essay. It's more like my mindset when I started, which was that I'll do these discrete chunks. When really my book wanted to be a narrative, I wanted it to be a narrative. I wanted it to have that power and that appeal. Nothing wrong with books of essays, but I wanted to do the narrative. But I didn't know how because I had never, in journalism, my newspaper journalism didn't teach me to write a, a cohesive, long-form narrative. And I think that newspapers, journalists who are still in journalism and practicing long form are better at that. Um, 
but I, I think it still has a challenge when you go from doing one-off pieces or even series to a book. So what drew you to the genre of narrative nonfiction to begin with? Well, as far as, um, being, as, far as starting in journalism and going into journalism, I, I wanted to uh, work as a writer and make my living as a writer. Um, and, I, and journalism, going to journalism school and going to work for newspapers seemed a way, seemed a way for me to do that. Uh, I didn't, I couldn't see as clear a path otherwise, and it appealed to me, to my sense of confidence. I also grew up in Florida reading a lot of great newspapers. At my house, we took the Miami Herald and the Orlando Sentinel and Coco Today and the Wall Street Journal, and I was surrounded by uh, newspapers from a very young age, and some of them uh, had great stories, and I was in a great newspaper state of Florida. And so I naturally, I think, gravitated toward that as an expression. So and was there a specific moment that, that clicked in your mind that you wanted to start stretching your legs and doing that, that narrative storytelling within the, with, under the umbrella of, of, of nonfiction, of the way that a Richard Ben Kramer and Gay Talese did? You know, what, what about the, what made you want to start really you know, spreading your... Like spreading, spreading the wings is sort of expanding on on the genre and, and pushing those limits. Well, I, I wanted to in journalism school. When I was in journalism school, it was in the wake of Watergate, first of all. So there was a big investigative emphasis. But it was also uh, in the wake of and during the great uh, new journalism renaissance. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, there wasn't anybody... Uh, at my journalism school, probably most journalism schools, who knew how to begin to teach new journalism, long-form, scenic uh, presentation, narrative presentation with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so I, I went out into the, into the newspaper world and, and gradually learned and was, and was getting closer to being able to do that at the Florida newspapers I worked at when I took a fellowship to Ohio State to get a master's, uh, really it was to stop and read and, and pause. But I met my wife and I never went back to those Florida newspapers, so although I, I ended up at a, uh, a couple of Indiana newspapers, and I'm proud of the body of work I did there, but they were smaller paper, well one of them, the one I ended up on, the Bloomington, Indiana paper was smaller and didn't lend itself to give you the time to do some things I wanted to do. So I did. I tended to do more investigative and uh, 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 Sunday news features for them, and I didn't get into the super depth that I wanted to. But by the time I, I made another career change into book publishing, and after being in that uh, for about uh, over a decade, I was, I was 50, I had always wanted to write books, and I just, one day I just said, well, we had an author at our press, actually, who had gotten an MFA from the Goucher program, and we were publishing her, what had been her master's um, thesis, and I thought, wait a minute, this is a low residency, I can do that. I don't think that I really understood how much I had to learn, actually. I think I thought, though, that it would clear some space and that I would... Uh, pick up a credential. I had no idea how ignorant I was about narrative um, and how much, in fact, it would help me. Mm -hmm. But it really did help me a lot. Right, right. 
So uh, what did you, you know, what was, you kind of touched upon it there, but what was some of that inspiration to to, to go to, to earn, earn the MFA at Goucher, and you know, what did you take away from it? Well, I remember, I mean, you know, the two couple things came together, you know, having this author produce this um, uh, book that had, you know, I saw, you know, I, I saw that, and I also was, uh, I was in a very difficult job as the marketing manager of a press, and I kind of, st- I didn't want particularly to do that job, because I knew I consuming the plate for the press and kind of taking one for the team and kind of in the wake of getting that settled down and everything I remember I was I was in the office one day and the radio was on and I, I heard this author talking about his new book and I just thought you know if I when am I gonna do this you know I I really I really would like to um, and I had and I had this story by that time that I wanted to tell of my farming adventure, and it didn't seem very speculative. I thought, boy, you know, that's a no-brainer. You know, people want to read that because for one thing, it had a little niche, the farm genre, which uh, is kind of a mixed bag today because farming has become alien and kind of exotic to people, and they don't understand it. On the other, they they don't have contact. They don't have any link anymore with farming. On the other hand, there is a small number of people in the resurgence of farming right now. It's one of those periodic back-to-the-land booms. And the wider society, even if people don't know anything about farming, they have started to think, uh, I should know more, I should care more about how my food is raised. And I thought that gave me a lot of confidence uh, going in, having that that niche. Um, as I say, it's turned out to be somewhat of a mixed bag because uh, I'm sort of amazed um uh, how exotic farming is. Usually people had a granddad or an uncle, father, somebody very intimately connected. They had some link with actual agriculture of some sort. It's just absolutely not the case anymore. So that exotic nature of it can kind of help, but it can kind of hurt because it's kind of like, I don't want to read a book about, you know, you know, somebody growing things and it's just not appealing to a lot of people. Mm Mm-hmm. Who are some of the writers in the narrative nonfiction genre that have inspired you and uh, that you try to emulate and who, um, who just gave you some of that, that spark, creative spark, too, uh, in your current work? Boy, um, you know, from on the journalistic side, I, I really, uh, uh, coming up and reading uh, the writers uh, on that side that, that had a big influence on me, I, I went through a strong Tom Wolfe period. I really liked Joan Didion's essayistic uh, journalism. I really liked the way Gay Talese could set a scene and bring readers into somebody's world and, and kind of be the fly on the wall. Um, a lot of those great uh, magazine journalists of the 60s and 70s uh, were and are people I really admire. I did um, find that uh, what I was doing with memoir um, was a bit different. Some of the, some of the techniques are portable um, such as scene making, and, but really memoir is its own thing, and uh, in some ways more similar to what you have to do in uh, fiction as far as uh, building a narrative and recreating the past, and uh, uh, you know some of the most 
ones that have had a lot of influence on me are uh, Lee Martin here in Ohio. He teaches at Ohio State, and he wrote a memoir called From Our House about growing up. Actually, actually, he grew up on a farm with a father who was maimed in a farming accident, full of rage. And his memoir about that is amazing. Uh, one of my top five all-time memoirs. And then he, he recently came out with a book of linked essay memoirs called Such a Life that are just amazing stories from his life, both growing up with this father, some as an older person, some just going through life and living. I really, really admire his work a lot. And then I'm reading a lot of uh, people that are now... Um, uh, although I, I have some journalistic instincts still, and I and sometimes I feel like uh, journalistic projects are very doable, and they're also the most marketable. I also am very interested in people who just sit down and write essays out of their out of their life and their experiences, like Dinty Moore, his memoir essays, generational memoir, as he calls them. Between Panic and Design, I admire very much. And his cleverness and his wit and his use of self, but at a sort of a modest, uh, in a sort of a, a, a low-key way, I really admire. Because I spent so long writing about myself and my boyhood and all my um, adventures and issues that I am kind of sick of that. And But yet, to use your sensibility... To use your sensibility either as a sensibility, it's what poets do, and that appeals to me a lot. So, what do you think of like, a lot of the great or the prolific writers that you admire? Like, what do you think that all of them have in common in the the actionable paths they take in their work to to get their work done and to and to get it published? I'm sure, like a lot of a lot of all great athletes and everything, they have a certain com common sub common commonalities between all of them. Uh, but then, and, and and they manifest it in, in whatever way they do. But I'm sure it's kind of the same across all disciplines. And I wonder what your insights would be to that for writers. Well, I think, you know, I think that's a really big question, Brendan. And I, I think it's a big, big issue. I think individual and personal a lot. Um, it's an issue that, that I'm facing very much now as I thrash around and I try to come up with, you know, another book project that I that will that I'll sustain with and stay on and believe in as much as as I did my memoir. You know, I think that for that's basically people who who don't stop and who keep working and creating piles of work. So, you know. What is it that one needs to do to do that? And I think that varies according to the person. I think that, you know, that some of us, there's, you know, some people, there's a little sand in the oyster and pearls from it. And there's some that maybe have more sand in the oyster and it's holding them back. So I think that, um, you know, one person you know, may need to just make sure that he gets enough exercise and the next person may need psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it's variable as to what any one person needs. But the commonality is that for some reason, the people that continue to publish 
keep producing. Because if you keep producing piles of work, two things happen. One, I'm convinced that great writing is a product of quantity. Quality comes from quantity. Mm -hmm. After I've been writing on my book for a year and a half, maybe two years, I began to go, yeah, I got some good shit here. <laughs> and I can quarry some of this into essays and stuff. And a lot of it was rejected, and I still get a lot of stuff rejected, don't get me wrong. But I published a heck of a lot out of my book. It's simply because every single day I was sitting down for three hours and cranking stuff out. And I can remember, you know, basically there were days when I, I would freak out and everything. But uh, it was funny. I got looking at all these years of work. It was sometimes really hard to tell what I had really had to gut out and what had been really inspired. You know, it, it kind of blends together i'm not, but however having said that you know there are little resonant glimmering things that you'll see but i think you'll only see them if you're consistently working and producing stuff and then the, the other thing is let's say somebody just isn't very good or his writing has problems if he just keeps if he produces a manuscript and maybe produces another one he just keeps producing work it's something that he can work with and that others might be interested in working with. You've kind of got to have, you just have to have the work. And it sounds stupid, but you just have to have that pile of work. And if you have that pile, yeah, whatever it takes for you personally to keep working. And I, do, I don't personally see that as a one-size-fits-all thing. Some One writer can say, you lazy son of a bitch, you you need to go tie yourself literally to your uh, chair every day and not get up until you've produced 500 words or a page or three pages. And another person may work totally differently. But, you know, the old saying, if you produce a page, only a page a day, that's 365 pages at the end of a year. Yep. So really, it's not quitting, but but the you know there's there's many reasons why people struggle and quit and all of this I'm very mindful in the wake of Robin Williams' death, which you know hit me really hard. As did Philip Seymour Hoffman's death from an overdose. You look at these very successful creative people and you say, what happened? Was it the work that made them kill themselves? I've ended up deciding no. These were people that had fragilities, but that the work is what kept them alive for so long so i think it's what i think the work that's why i say love is that's an annie dillard idea that love is stronger than discipline mm -hmm. i think that uh, it's very important to um uh to love it and to cultivate a love for the work because if it's just discipline i'm gonna gut this out i'm gonna grip my teeth by god and i'm gonna do it i think that that sets up within you within the writer something that's uh, antithetical to creation ultimately I think that um, that discipline is an element but it shouldn't be front-loaded I think that what should be cultivated and nurtured is somehow the love for the work and sometimes that may mean saying I'm taking three months off and I'm just I, I'm instead of being in the fetal position for three months 
I'm going to read. I'm just going to read and love stuff. In fact, that's what I did after I got Bill Rohrbach's report that was so extensive about my book, and I realized the magnitude of what I uh, what I had done and the magnitude of what I hadn't yet done, and I freaked out, and I just and I and I didn't do anything for three months, but I read like a fiend, and I thought, and then I. And then, then I hit it again. So I think what, you know, whatever a writer needs to do, whether it's journaling, morning mind dump journaling, or um, low stakes prompts, whatever somebody needs to do, you got to figure that out sort of for, for yourself as to what works for you and do it because one, you know, one person may, you know, get up every day and journal, write three pages by hand and be fed by that and go and then, you know, type out a page or two or three of, of things on a project. Or maybe the journal itself that somebody is doing is something that he or she mines for a, a project. But I think that it's real difficult to say this is the path. I think whatever the, the path is simply that writing builds writing and writing leads to more writing so you have to figure out for you i took a, i'll also tell you another thing brendan i took a lot of online classes when i was working i got lonely mm-hmm. i was teaching i was trying to tell undergraduates you know all these great things about writing i was discovering but i wanted to share my work i didn't have a writing group that lasted for very long and so post mfa i enrolled in you know, a series of writing courses at uh, Stanford. Stanford's online courses are really good, and Writers.com are good and less expensive than Stanford's. And that that helped to kind of give me a community and to share work and to keep me to keep me going. I mean, I had tons of stuff to submit. I I, I never really had to write anything for class because I had so much stuff, which was a wonderful feeling. Because no matter what the assignment was, the professor gave. I could submit something that I've written in the last X many years that I was struggling with on this book. So there wasn't a lot of pressure, but there was, it stimulated me. It made me feel like I was, you know, really doing something and not just deluding myself. Mm-hmm. And what are some of your morning rituals, like your, your writing rituals, like before you, before you get going, you know, in the morning, just to, just to sort of limber up and, and get ready for whatever creative endeavor you're attacking. Well, I am I am a morning writer, and what I what I actually do is uh, I don't I don't have too many. It's more like avoiding uh, <laughs> avoiding things in the morning, like a, a, a writing morning. I'm not going to open email first and get my mind going or polluted with anybody else's ideas or words or controversies or issues. No, none of that. Um, online news or anything might eat breakfast first and first and the radio news will be on but nothing that draws me into social media for me it's more a matter of okay eat a quick breakfast and get my uh get my writing uh for the day uh done that's basically for me that's basically it that's real important so to what degree do you organize or or outline any long piece of writing ahead of time um well you know i just plunged in basically to my book i did do some timelines which were useful going in in the fullness of time 
I did all of that. I did everything you can possibly do because I produced so many versions. So by the end of it, I had this thing that was really useful, which I would, uh, I would, I would do again from the start because it proved so useful, which was to make an outline of what I had written basically as I went. The, to me, the most useful planning is, um, reverse outlining or outlining after the fact mm -hmm. it's, it's not you know, it hasn't been going in with a plan but it's more like hey okay i wrote this 20 page chapter or i wrote this i have this essay adapted or a 20 15 20 page essay let's outline it and see what's there and see what it needs and see how things could be better organized that's very useful for me um i'm not i don't mean to poo poo planning but I have come to believe much more in, in discovery. I know that there are uh, writers that plan extensively, and that really works for them. And um, I think for a memoir, I think it can help to sort of have an idea of, okay, this is a, a fairly traditional memoir, which, which mine is in many ways. It, does it fall into three acts? Is there a three-act structure here? where will be my big turning points and and think about that going in and and you know scribble some things down make a make a little line even and also i think a time for memoirs is very important and you can do it as you go because you'll remember other things but the most useful thing was this outline i did as i went and then then you could see at a glance it's a word document, and, you, and and it's just like okay, chapter, or it could be essay, and it would I would do a um, a dash and write a scene of of me going to the feed store and and meeting so and so, and then the next line would be dash, and it would be it would be a new scene whenever that first scene when it changed. Often they were at space breaks. They wouldn't necessarily have to be at space breaks, and it's it's whenever there's a major change. If a scene goes on long enough, you've either got to put the new beat in there or just thicken up that description so that at a glance you can see everything that's in each chapter or each section, each each part of an essay. And I also color ended up color coding them. And some people use a whiteboard for this, or or the old-fashioned way index cards. I used a Word document, and I could print it out and look at it and see, okay, how many times have I mentioned, because it's important to have this in there. Uh, in my book, it was important to mention that I have allergies. I didn't make a real big deal about it in the book, but it, it went to the uh, uh, persona I was trying to develop or, or the self I was trying to show that I was a guy that had grown up in a suburban beach town and, you know, I wore button-down shirts, and I had glasses, and I was bald, and I wasn't very heavily muscled guy, and to top it all off, I suffered from ragweed, mm -hmm. you know? So it's kind of like, this is the guy who's not your, maybe your image of a farmer, but he's in there struggling and trying. So I would want to know, you know, how many times did I end up mentioning that, my allergies were bothering me, and where did I do that? And so I would, 
with having that outline after the fact, I could see where I had done it and maybe where I should do it. Or maybe there were two mentions really close to each other. And I wanted the reader to kind of remember that or remember that I had chewed my fingernails to stumps again. That was another thing I wanted to show that I was really anxious, that I was it was physically and emotionally and intellectually demanding. And that one of the things I'd do is I'd be driving to work and I'd be chewing my fingernails off. So I'd want to know you know, how many times did I mention that to remind the reader about that so the reader remembered it, but not to beat it to death because it didn't need to be. So those kinds of things, that kind of outlining was real helpful to me. But that kind of thing, I don't know how you'd plan that in advance, Brendan. There are so many things that you have to have in a book and that have to be working. How would I, I mean, that's so, I granted, that's low level. That's why, you know, my allergies and my fingernail biting. I mean, come on, I'm not going to outline that in advance. You've got to see where it naturally comes up and then see where it might be better used or enhanced. On the other hand, the three big sections of my story are finally buying a farm after a painful search and then getting hurt seriously on the farm and then uh, selling this uh, a magical piece of land. So those were the three big acts. However, my book actually has four sections. And um, I did that because the long middle section, okay, so the first act ends, and then there's this big fat middle section of rising action to the big climax of, of my getting hurt on the farm. But that was a very long section because within that, there's not only my getting hurt, but there's two major sheep issues are going on, a, a genetic flaw in the flock that uh, resulted in birthing problems and a horrible medieval disgusting disease that surfaced in another part of the flock and, and what happened to me and what happened to the land. So I looked at that and I thought, I, that big long middle section, instead of calling it one act, I want to give readers another resting place in that, and a natural rest. There, there was a natural resting place in it. So the structure of the book became: first act, we manage to get a farm; second act, we get sheep; third act, I get hurt; fourth act, uh, resolve the story, sell, sell the land, resolve the story, resolve. Uh, some of my issues. Funny thing about that, I was actually taking a Stanford course in memoir and struggling with that idea of putting in another act to give, to sort of emphasize um, the, the different phases, to emphasize, you know, we finally got sheep and we're really involved in, in farming. It took a long buildup to have our first lambing. And I had this teacher that it was a real, she's a really good writer and teacher at Stanford. She was very offended by my idea. She said, you, you can't just throw in an act like that. It's got to be organic. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, Rachel, um, paragraphing is kind of arbitrary. Uh, there, that's a form of act structuring. I'm not doing it for an arbitrary reason, though. I'm doing it because I want to give the reader another resting point and another emphasis point. Um, she was very offended. She never agreed. Um, and I went, you know, I went against her advice. But it's a funny thing. If you look at my book, you'll say, hmm, that's interesting. A four-act memoir, very balanced, each act about the same length. But it's tr in truth, I consider it a, a classic three-act 
uh, structure. So it's more like Act 1, 2A, 2B, Act 3. Exactly. In a lot of ways. So here is an, kind of a few rapid-fire things that I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Um, if you had to give your 20-year-old self advice, what would it be? Don't be don't be so afraid and worried about your dream. Pursue it. Read and write and pursue it. And what are some of the books that you uh, reread and return to again and again? One is um, a novel I love by Virginia Woolf called uh, "To the Lighthouse." It's a great modernist masterpiece, and I think it's absolutely a beautiful book. Um, I return sometimes to, or Ernest Hemingway was a big influence on me when I was a teenager, and I think I really learned, uh, one thing that's not often um, uh, said about him is that he, he not only wrote, wrote great sentences, but he was a great lyric, he was a great lyric writer, and I think that he had a very strong influence on me, the lyricism of his language, and he was just so wonderful at describing landscapes, and I really respond to that. Uh, I reread uh, Lee Martin's memoirs and memoir and memoir essays. As I said, I think he's a master. To me, he's very he's do, he does something that's deceptively um, easy looking, but but very hard, which is to uh, recreate the past, uh, have a strong narrative, giving the reader an experience of what it was like to do something, and yet within it, work in little bits of reflection from his current self looking back. Uh, I'm obsessed with that because I find it difficult, and I'm so impressed with the way he does it. And it is held up as a model, so I, I really like to reread his his memoir. So on the memoir side, I really like to, I really like to read uh, Lee Martin's stuff again and again. What are some of the books that you might give uh, give as gifts, and that, or the book or two that you've given as a gift the most? Well, um, that's that's an interesting question. I would say depends on the writer. If it's memoir, I would suggest that a person read um, Lee Martin's From Our House to learn how a memoir can be constructed very gracefully with narrative movement, yet also contain reflection. I think that, uh, that that's funny. I mean, that's a book I've, I've read now four times. And I think that it's so important uh, for me to keep reading it because he has such a deft touch with narrative movement, yet also reflective. The Great Gatsby is a book that I reread a lot because I think that his language, I mean, nobody uses semicolons and dashes better than Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, nobody. That, to me, The Great Gatsby is is the great American novel, and I and I reread it. Um, so those are those are two that I that I continue two writers that I continue to go back to. You know, what are you uh, currently working on these days in terms of uh, of a book project or you know, something maybe sh- just short of a book project? Yeah, at this point it's just short of a book project, but I'm, I'm working on some essays. I'm trying to decide how and whether they're talking to each other and if they could be melded into more than just standalone essays. Um, 
in the way that Sue Silverman has recently done in the Pat Boone fan club, um, in the way that uh, Patricia Hampel did in a, a book I just read and liked a lot called Blue Arabesque, A Search for the Sublime, which is about her love of um, art and literature and her lifelong consumption of art and literature. And she identified some commonalities in that love, which she then explores. And it has a, a kind of a loose narrative moving through time with her in various places. Uh, so I'm, and I just finished a book by Judith Kitchen called Distance and Direction, which are lyric essays. And um, I'm, you know, I'm, hers were not uh, quite as linked as the other two, but there were certain recurring motifs and themes. So I'm... I'm reading things that are much more uh, like distance and direction is much more poetic and experimental than anything I normally read or write. And I got on to some of these books as a consequence of going to the Kenyan writers workshop this past summer. And I produced a couple of essays, rough essays at the conference that, um, are, are, are things I'm still working on. So I would say right now it's, uh, I'm trying, I don't know what it's leading to. And, and that's, and that's a hard thing. You know, you, you mentioned how, how writers continue to produce. And I think that, um, uh, in my case, it's important to realize that even though I may not know what I'm doing or what something might lead to that, uh, I hope to keep working so that I will discover something because I think, uh, uh, it's real. It's real easy, and it's real natural to just say, uh, "I'm just going to stop for a while because I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm going to wait for a project or think up a project." But I think in the meantime, I should tr be producing something. And these essays, loosely linked by the very broad theme of emotion, are what I've been working on. Great, and I think that's a perfect place to cap off our conversation here. So, you know, for anyone who's going to be listening to this podcast hopefully it's more than five or six people richard's memoir wonderful memoir is named shepherd and it's uh it's about farming fatherhood and uh just about uh just a wonderful experience uh you know reading and uh like i said in a short review i did of it i uh i dog-eared i had more dog ears on the memoir than uh than at a at a vet clinic or whatever <laughs> whatever it was they said. I can't even remember at this point. But in either case, like Richard, you did a wonderful job with the book, and I can't wait for the other stuff that you've got coming down the pipeline. Thank you, Brendan, and, and thank you for this interview. Cool. Very nice.